Well, grab your Bibles and turn back to Jeremiah chapter 2, where we were last week. We're continuing to make our way through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. We are currently in the book of Jeremiah. And as you're turning there, I'm not going to, because I know it would be awkward, but if I asked for a show of hands of how many of you worshipped idols this past week, I wonder what the response would be. There'd be some confused looks, uh, tremendous discomfort filling the room. Someone might even say, Phil, Phil, we don't worship idols. Uh, we're, we're civilized modern-day Americans. Well, let's pick up in Jeremiah chapter 2 and see what God might have to say about that. We saw last week in this chapter how God began expressing his heartache over the sins of his people and he summed all of that up in verse 13. So let's look at that again. Jeremiah 2, 13. God says, For my people have committed two evils, or two sins. First, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And second, they have dug cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Last week, we looked at the first of those evils. My people have forsaken me, the fountain or the spring of living waters. This is a, it's a beautiful description of something fresh and flowing. God is describing himself here as the source of life, and yet his people have turned away from that. But today, I want to look at the inevitable second sin. And I say inevitable because this second sin, and it's very important that we get this, this second sin always, always, follows the first sin. There's never been an exception to this in the history of the world because God's laws are immutable. They cannot be defied. This second sin will always follow the first sin. So having now forsaken God, the fountain of living waters, his people then go on to dig cisterns for themselves but they find out that they're broken cisterns that can hold no water. And I, I don't know of a better depiction of chasing after something other than God and, and realizing in time that it will leave you broken and empty and thirsty. Now, if we disconnect ourselves from, from God, from the fountain of life, this is another very critical point. If we disconnect ourselves from him, the fountain of life, we don't leave that space in our heart empty. We always fill it with something else. Once you reject the truth, you will follow a lie. Once you reject biblical faith, you will believe in something unbiblical. There's no vacuum inside of us in this regard. G.K. Chesterton said this, When a man stops believing in God, he doesn't believe in nothing. He believes in anything. And those other things that we fill our hearts with, God here in Jeremiah 2 calls cisterns. Now, as I mentioned last week, it's not a word we use, maybe not even a word we know. Let me give a very quick explanation so that we can understand the picture that God is using here with his people. Uh, there's a picture I brought of a, a typical Old Testament cistern. Normally they would have a, a rock covering the top. 
But now these were not wells. It was not the kind of thing you could lower a bucket down into and pull up uh, fresh, clean water from the underground stream. Cisterns were simply underground tanks where rainwater would gather, and it would be stored there for, for months often as an emergency backup supply of water. The, the, this is a very arid, dry part of the world. And so people had to be very creative in water management, or they would die of thirst. And so this is one of the ways that they tried to solve that issue. The problem was, after a while, that water in that underground tank would turn funky. It would turn green. It would start to smell. Uh, it would be filled with dead bugs and dead critters, and it was just nasty water. The truth is, you read history about this. No one wanted to drink water from the cistern. No one got up in the morning and said, oh, let me get the ladle and go out. Is that what that is? Yeah. And, and scoop some water from the... Anybody use a ladle this week? Uh, let me go out and get a big gulp of water from the cistern. Nobody thought that. That's not what the cistern was for. It was an emergency backup of water. It was used as a last resort. But it's even worse than that. Because not only did those cisterns contain stagnant, nasty water after a while, but if they did hold water at all, that would eventually leak out because the Bible tells us uh, that these cisterns would crack and they would leak and end up empty right at the moment when that emergency water was so desperately needed. Again, a fantastic picture of what false pursuits will do to us. But now, God doesn't only call these cisterns. Notice now, these are verses we looked at last week. I'll just touch on very quickly as a reminder. Notice that God also calls these other pursuits, not only cisterns, he calls them idols. It's a word... Honestly, it's unfortunate how language morphs over time. Uh, but this is one of those words that we, we just have a hard time fitting into our uh, modern high-tech vernacular. We hear the word idols, and we immediately, our mind goes back maybe hundreds or thousands of years or into the, the deepest jungles of the Amazon, and we picture primitive people bowing around a roaring fire with statues everywhere and worshiping. And so we immediately, in our mind, distance ourselves from idols. We go, well, that was then. Certainly has nothing to do with me now. But God calls these other pursuits idols. Look at some examples of what he says about these idols. Back in verse 5 of Jeremiah 2, thus says the Lord, what injustice have your fathers found in me that they have gone far from me, have followed worthless idols, and have become worthless themselves? He repeats this in the second part of verse 8. These prophets prophesied by Baal, following after worthless idols. And again in verse 11. Has a nation ever changed its gods, which are not gods at all, but my people have exchanged their glory for worthless idols. Now, surely we can pick up the cadence of what God is saying here. He's repeating this like a drumbeat. Worthless idols, worthless idols, worthless idols. Now, of course, they didn't seem worthless to the people at the time who began pursuing 
and worshiping these idols because the people truly believed that those idols were going to bring to them some measure, some sense of purpose and meaning and fulfillment. These were not stupid people. So they truly believed that there was worth in pursuing these idols. But in following worthless idols, God says, they became worthless themselves. Now that's a harsh statement. But it's one that we need to hear. We need to take this in because the the truth is, in time, you always become like what you worship. This is true even of the gospel. The gospel saves us, but then the process continues in the form of sanctification that through the rest of our saved life here on this earth, the gospel is continually making us more like Christ. Over time, you become like what you worship. If you worship the one true God, you become aligned with the truth. If you worship false gods, you become false. If you worship the empty things of this world, you will eventually become empty. You become like your God. And not only that, what you worship, what you set your focus on, will eventually determine your destination. Now, again, we live in the land of immediate gratification, and so long-term things for us, we have to really discipline our mind to understand the importance of those things. Saving money for the future, just on a practical level of being wise about things, is something that this generation doesn't do. The current generation is, uh, if they had a, a, an emergency bill of $500 or more, it would essentially render them helpless. You understand, people, people today don't think past today often. They're living in the immediate. And so when I, when I talk to you about we have to be careful what you worship and what you set your focus on because that will eventually determine your destination in life. We're like, gee, destination in life. I don't even know what I'm having for lunch today, Phil. But it's important. I told you my dad would, would pump this into us growing up. He would always say, son, always live life with the end in view. And I'd be like, Dad, I'm eight. Can I, <laughs> can I have a little time? You know? And I didn't really appreciate that then, but I do now. I do now. And so what you worship, what you set your focus on, is going to ultimately determine where you end up in life and where you end up in eternity. There used to be signs in the outback of Australia that said, I brought a picture of one here, choose your rut carefully, you'll be in it for the next 60 miles. See, when it rained heavily there and it would wash out things and cars would come through and it would make ruts and then it would dry, you'd, you'd have to pick your rut carefully because once you were in it, there was no getting out of it. And that's, that's pretty good advice for life too. Choose your rut carefully because you might find yourself stuck in it for years and years to come. Listen, everybody worships something. 
That drive is built into human beings. You can travel to any part of the world, which our family has done multiple times around the globe. You can go to any time in history, whether it's a modern city, whether it's a, a primitive tribe. You may not find great industry in that place. You may not find um, prominent institutions of learning in that place. You may not find an abundance of wealth in that place, but you will see evidence of worship in every place on earth where people live. You'll see a temple or a church or a shrine or a mosque or an idol. That's because wherever there are people, there will always be worship. And if those people are not worshiping God, they will be worshiping idols of some kind. Now again, do your best this morning for the next few minutes to try to disassociate the word idols with a statue. And we'll get to that in just a moment. Now again, we may think that we don't need a warning about idolatry. After all, we're, we're modern New Testament Christians. Well, do you know what the very last thing the Apostle John wrote to his readers in his letter to them that we call 1 John? He had gone and he covered, I mean, it's a remarkable book. We taught through it one time. And he had given them all kinds of wisdom and advice. And now how you, how you wrap things up is pretty important. The very last thing that John wrote in that first letter to New Testament Christians, we find in 1 John 5.21, he said, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. So yes, the warning does apply, but it's even more deceptive than you might think. Idols are more than statues. They're more than carvings. They're more than temples. In Ezekiel 14.3, God is speaking to the leaders of Israel, and listen to this statement. He says, son of man, these people have set up idols in their hearts. These are not idols you can see or touch. They're idols in your heart, but they're idols nonetheless. Tim Keller was a pastor in New York City who uh, went home to be with the Lord just very recently, actually. He worked among mostly young, professional, highly educated, successful business people. And yet, he wrote in his book, Counterfeit Gods, that even those people are driven by idolatry. He defines an idol as something we cannot live without. Something we cannot live without. And he identifies some of our, our common idols as money, materialism, sex, power, body image, work, ambition, reputation, but those are nothing new. These idols uh, that I just listed and, and many more are actually identified in the New Testament. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, the Apostle Paul wrote these words, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. 
These are idols, but they're not out there. They're in here. As Ezekiel says, you've made idols in your heart. For example, money is a necessity of life. We all know that. But money can become a powerful, life-altering God that makes you do things you would never normally do. Tim Keller wrote about five leading um, bankers who, in the last recession, all committed suicide because they had made money their idol, and when they lost it all, they had nothing to worship. They had nothing left to live for. Lust can become a driving power in a person's life. And if you feed it long enough, it'll destroy everything and everyone you hold dear. Power is an idol. The desire for power, the desire to control others is an idol. And this happens in so many subtle ways that we must be aware of. There are marriages where husbands lord it over their wives. I told you once about the, uh, the acquaintance Sandy and I had years ago, and uh, he would be in the lazy boy in the living room watching his sports, having a drink, and when he ran out of drink, he would rattle the ice cubes in his glass as the indication that his wife needed to come and get him a refill. There are marriages where wives manipulate and control their husbands. There are families where children are manipulated and controlled by their parents who are domineering over them, who never let them make their own decision, and who continue this dominance over them their entire life, even into their marriage. There are people who would otherwise enjoy their job, except for the fact that their boss is a power-hungry, uncaring tyrant. Listen, power is a deadly idol that can turn people into monsters. What about the idol of acceptance? Has there ever been a more real-time display of this than with social media? Acceptance. Young people spiraling into depression and drugs and even suicide because they didn't get enough likes and they feel like an outcast in society. That, that has become the reference point by which they measure their value and their worth as a person. There are, are entire companies that exist. They make their money from selling likes for people's social media pages. This is how much of a driving force this idol of acceptance is, and it's tragic. What about the idol of status? Living to impress others with what you own, what you wear, what you drive, where you live, where you vacation, who you know, what your job title is, how much money you make. And often it's not even those things that have any real value to you. It's the value that others put on them that is important to you. These things can become the driving force in our lives, and in time they can literally take possession of us. 
Later on in this chapter in Jeremiah 2, verse 25, God said to the people, but you said, it's no use. I love foreign gods and I must go after them. That is one of the definitions of an idol. I'd like to turn away, Pastor Phil, but I love it too much and I have to go after it. You see, when anyone disconnects themselves from the source of life and living water, they will reconnect to something false. And their mind, their thinking will become twisted and warped, and they will be driven to do things that they would never have otherwise done. I remember years ago pleading with a young husband who was out being unfaithful to his wife, had moved out and was living with another woman. And I called him on it, and I confronted him on it. And his response was, well, I'm happy where I am right now. I just want to see how it goes. And so I said, well, let me get this straight. Let me make sure I understand what you're saying. You're saying you want to go to Disneyland and have fun right now while your wife is at home taking care of everything and raising the children. And then when your fun runs out, then you want your wife to be waiting for you and have the option of coming back and just kind of getting right back in the flow of things. I said, buddy, life doesn't work that way. And you see, that man a year before, no one in this room would have ever believed that he would have been capable of making that decision and saying those words. Not even me. But you see what disconnecting yourself from the source of truth can do. It slowly begins to warp your thinking, and it will cause you to become someone you never dreamed you would be. Those are idols. And those idols and addictions will promise to give you everything you're searching for. That's why people go after them. I don't know anybody who is lining up at the dentist just to go and get a filling. Dentists like, your teeth are perfect, you don't need one, but I want a filling. <laughs> no one pursues things like that because they know up front, man, that's going to be painful. So why do people pursue things that ultimately ruin their life? Because when those things are presented to us on a daily basis, by the way, they come in beautiful, shining colors. They come looking um, wonderful and new and alluring, and they promise you everything. And then once you've taken the bait, it's like a fish thinking he's going to have a good, delicious worm for lunch, and he bites on that worm and finds a hook through his jaw. That's what sin does. That's what these idols do. They promise you everything up front, but in the end, they will leave you desolate and broken. Verse 28 of Jeremiah chapter 2 says this. God is now speaking to these people who've said, hey, God, we don't need you. We're having lots of fun with our idols right now. God says, where then are the gods you made for yourselves? Let them come if they can save you when you are in trouble. 
For you have as many gods as you have towns, O Judah. You see, every other pursuit apart from God will eventually abandon you. And it will leave you helpless and hopeless. But the good news is we're actually not helpless uh, against these idols. God gave us a conscience. To me, it's one of the beautiful proofs that we were created by God. Romans chapter 2 describes it this way, starting in verse 14. Now, this is a bit of a tongue twister verse, but try to get what this is saying. When Gentiles, in other words, non-Jews, who do not have the law or the law of God, do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, uh, even though they do not have the law. Now listen, since they show or reveal or expose that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, even defending them. So these are people who have never heard the law of God, and yet they have a sense of right and wrong that mirrors, reflects the law of God. How is that possible? Well, it's possible because God put that law in their heart. And the only reason they disobey that awareness of right and wrong, the Bible tells us in another place, is because they suppress the truth that they know. They drown it out. They silence their conscience. But it's inside everybody. Look, you you don't have to be a, a, a genius to see this. Little children teach us this. Little children, even at a young age, have a built-in sense of justice, of right and wrong. If you give an ice cream to a little child, and the child sitting right next to her doesn't get an ice cream, in a few seconds, there's going to be a cry for justice. Because even that little child understands what justice looks like, what right and wrong looks like. Why? Because there's an inherent God-given sense of right and wrong, of morality, of justice in our conscience. But the problem is we can't depend on our conscience exclusively anymore to guide us into what is right or wrong because we are all broken by sin. And sin has damaged our conscience. And it's made it a a dangerously unreliable source of determining what is right and wrong. Paul said this in 1 Timothy 4, verse 2. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. In Titus 1.15, he said, their minds and consciences are corrupted. We cannot trust our sin-stained conscience. That's why it's vital that we remain connected to the fountain of living water, the source of life and truth, so that he can be our conscience. Listen, in my flesh, I am a terrible determiner of good and bad, of right and wrong of any sense of justice. You know why? Because it always slants in my favor. 
always. I am a selfish, rotten individual. And if anybody says amen right now, the service is over. (laughs) But I am. I am a selfish person. And on my own, without a connection to the Holy Spirit, living through me, purifying my mind, my attitudes, my desires, my conscience, without that, ask my wife. I'm a horrible person. Because I want everybody to love me. I want the last slice of pie. I want this. I want it my way. And so do you. Quit looking at me like that. So do you. I'm describing all of us without that connection to the truth. That's all of us. You know, you and I are not even capable of loving another person rightly without God. You simply can't do it. You can love, but there's always a footnote to your love. I love you. Boy, you better love me back or I'll dial down my love. That's not God's love. You see, listen, I want you to get this. Breaking away from God eventually breaks you. It eventually breaks you. Those idols you're pursuing that promise to give you so much one day, and we've all been there, if you're not, Let me describe what's about to happen. One day, you'll awaken to the reality that you've actually been robbed blind by them. They've stolen from you the very things they promised to give you. Because the idols themselves are empty. They're powerless. They're broken. And that's exactly how they will leave you when they're finished with you. I thought of, as I was putting this together, Psalm 115 We haven't looked at this in a very long time, but listen to these incredible words from Psalm 115, starting in verse 2. Why do the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. But their idols are silver and gold made by the hands of men. Now listen to this sarcasm that just gets Put on layer after layer after layer until you're like, all right, we get it. Verse 5, they have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but they cannot see, they have ears but they cannot hear, noses but they cannot smell, they have hands but they cannot feel, feet but they cannot walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them. And so will all who trust in them. Hey, that's the rut I mentioned earlier. And listen, listen, you'd better, and I say this to our our adults, but especially to our students, you'd better find out where that rut is going before you get into it. The things that come your way in life, the choices that come your way, You better take some time to do what my dad said and determine the end of things before you make a commitment to it, before you give yourself to it. Again, one more time, I quote Tim Keller. He says this, idols are spiritual addictions that lead to terrible evil. And you know 
It is a God when you must have it. And you are driven to break the rules you once honored and even to harm others and to harm yourself in order to get it. That's when you know it's an idol. That's when you know it is a spiritual addiction. Look, let me, let me try to start bringing all this together and bring it home for all of us by asking a few questions. Is there anything making you behave in a way or believe in a way that you would never have behaved or believed 10 years ago, five years ago, six months ago? If so, there's some idol that you've brought into your heart that is manipulating you and deceiving you and has pulled you away from the mooring of truth. Is there anything you do that is harming other people? Even those you say you love. If it is, there is an idol that has taken control of you and has numbed your sensitivity and awareness to the people around you so much so that it's willing to make you steamroll right over them in order to get that thing you want. Hey, if someone you love says you're hurting me, you'd better pay attention to them while you still have time. Is there anything you're doing that is harming you? Others around you can see your life spiraling out of control, but you refuse to see it. There's an idol that is blinding you to the destruction taking place in your life. Is there anything in your life that you cannot let go of? God prompts your heart about it, and you feel convicted about it as a believer, and you say, no, not today. If there is, there's an idol that you've allowed to take control of you. All those things are symptoms of having left the fountain of living water, this fresh-flowing, life-giving spring, and exchanged it for a cistern, a tank of stagnant, dirty water that's cracked and leaking and will soon leave you empty. Uh, if you've been here a while, you know I love a lot of the old hymns. Um, they're not all great. I, I don't paint with a broad brush, and I don't say all the new stuff is bad like some people do. Uh, it's funny, I asked a guy one time who was just, <clears throat> he was so upset by the fact that we have drums, you know, here, and uh, that we were singing the newer music. And I listened very intently, and I said, uh, so tell me then, what year is the cutoff? And I, well, I never thought about that. Uh, you see, something just so simple like that. Well, them new songs, they are all evil. I don't, okay, well, what's new then? Tell me, what's the date? Where do I need to, does it have to be 300 years old? Were they all perfect back then? There's some hymns that are really rotten, by the way. 
<clears throat> bad theology. But I do love many of the old hymns. I love old writing. Um, there's something very, very special about that era of time. The 1800s was is just, uh, I'm not sure what it was. There was something in the air when, when believers wrote about their relationship with God, there seems to have been a depth and an authenticity that is uh, sorely lacking today. Here's one hymn that I so love about what we're talking about today. Written in 1879, it's called None But Christ Can Satisfy. Listen to the honesty of these words. O Christ, in thee my soul has found, and found in thee alone the peace, the joy I sought so long, the bliss till now unknown. Now none but Christ can satisfy, no other name for me. There's love and life and lasting joy, Lord Jesus, found in thee. Listen to this. I tried the broken cisterns, Lord, but ah, the waters failed. Even as I stooped to drink, they fled and mocked me as I wailed. Maybe some of you listening to my voice right now are being mocked by idols and mocked by sins that you thought were your friends and were going to bring you pleasure and fulfillment and understanding and enlightenment and peace and joy and satisfaction. And you're feeling defeated and empty and broken. I have great news for you. There is a remedy. I told you in the book of Jeremiah, there are a number of themes that you see running through. The word of the Lord came to me. That's one of the themes. Another theme, 48 times in the book of Jeremiah, we find the word return. Return. Over and over again, the Lord pleads with his people, begging them to return to him. And he's inviting you to do the same today. If you find yourself at a place in life where you have at some point disconnected yourself from the source of living water, and you thought, man, you know, I I know I can find better stuff over here, but you're finding that it's left you empty and unfulfilled, disillusioned, and duped, He's inviting you to come back today to the spring of living water. Jesus said, whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a a well of water springing up to eternal life. And maybe even now you're sitting here thinking, Phil, you know, I've been so plundered and drained by the idols that I've been chasing that I don't have anything left to even bring to God to get this living water. Let me close with these wonderful words from our Lord in Isaiah 55. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, Buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on that which is not bread and your labor on that which does not satisfy? 
Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me. Hear me that your soul may live. Wow, those are precious words for anybody who is longing for that living water again. Folks, I urge you today, don't settle for broken cisterns any longer. Come and drink the living water today and delight yourself in the abundant supply that Christ alone can give. I pray that you will. Father, we thank you for your word once again and its remarkable ability to show us the truth. Lord, I think of the things in my own life that I thought would satisfy me, edify me, enlighten me, fulfill me. And I went and I dug my own cistern. And I thought that it was going to give me everything I was looking for. Lord, I can testify that your word is true, that they all eventually left me empty and disappointed and thirsty once again. I pray, Father, first of all, that if there's anyone listening to this sermon right now here or elsewhere who has never surrendered their life to you, I pray that in this moment, Lord, your Holy Spirit would draw them to you, that they would admit their sin, they would repent of that, and they would turn to you and receive you, Christ, into their life as their Savior and their Lord. Lord, for those who do know you, they're, they're trying to walk with you in this very broken world. And there are so many distractions, so many things that pull us off course. And maybe this very moment, they are, they are staring into a broken cistern. Lord, I pray they would hear those words, return to me, return to me. I pray that today, before the service is over, they would do just that. If we can be of help to you in any way, I'll be at the back during the closing songs. We'll have a lady at the back as well. I encourage you, um, if you need to talk with someone, don't care what the people around you think if you get up and scoot out of your aisle. These things we're talking about are of eternal importance. If we can help you, I encourage you to just get up out of your seat and come and speak to someone. We'd be glad to pray with you and show you from Scripture how to return to this living water today. Amen. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him. of my heart I want
Of my heart. 